Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast with your hosts, Joe Alcock and Coffee Brown. Hey, what's this thing? Oh, it's one of those. <laughs> Emergencies abound in this, uh, in this locale. No thanks. It's our world, right? That's right. So yeah, so just following up a little bit from our last conversation where we talked about intermittent fasting and cognition, Coffee, you mentioned just a moment ago that you're, you're giving this a try. Yeah, so I, I actually went on that uh, 9 to 5 schedule just to try it out and see what it was like. You can't get scientific data that way, but I was curious. And uh, what I found was, wowzers, I'm really busy from 9 to 5. I had trouble getting enough food. I actually lost a bunch of weight in the first week. I wow. think I've accounted for that now. Um, I would think, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to eat between hours of 9 to 5, that's pretty much work hours. Yeah, pretty <laughs> right? much Almost by definition. Well, I yeah. sort of latched onto it because it was one of the ones that was mentioned in the article, that particular mm-hmm. regimen. Right. And um, incidentally, for those of you listening at home, I'm one of the few people who can say regimen, regime, and regiment correctly. Um, I can't say any either any of them. <laughs> not, not a one. Not even going to try. If I went later, I, I mean, I could consider it. It just, it just seemed to make sense to me. Anyway, um, so I was a little hungry for the first couple of days, and then I sort of got used to it. And I forgot that I like feeling a little hungry all the time. So for me, this is fine. So that makes you unlike the majority of Americans. Yeah, there's something Most that makes me feel sort of slow. immediately feel like they have to eat. Yeah. However, uh, did it make me feel smarter? No, it definitely didn't make me feel smarter. Again, this isn't like evidence. Uh, I did definitely feel a little duller as I got toward the very end of the period before the next you know, round of calories. Yeah. So there is a point at which I began to dull a bit, but there wasn't any point where I felt sharper than before. Right. And in our line of work where we're dealing with emergencies um, and I'm working in the ED, you could make the argument that being hungry or even being distracted by hunger could be a, a potentially bad thing. I would agree with that, yeah. And it's also a high... Uh, high energy kind of thing. Now, one of the things I did that I think is important if people are going to try intermittent fasting, I have no idea whether I'd recommend it, but if you're going to try it, it's absolutely critical that you keep your activity level up and that you keep some form of cardiovascular or other intense exercise like HIIT or circuit training because your metabolism will try to slow down to match your calorie intake. And that will backfire on you. So you've got to keep your activity level up if you're going to try this, if you're not going to try fasting, it's still important to keep the activity level up. Yeah. And if we just go to epidemiologic literature, the evidence for exercise far exceeds the evidence for fasting. Just oh, yeah. in terms of quality, quantity, there's just so much there. There's abundant, abundant evidence that uh, exercise improves your cognition both acutely and chronically. So your lifetime chance of dementia is less if you're a regular exerciser. But exercising before an important test also has been shown to improve scores. And I've actually used that here from time to time, anecdotally now. Mm-hmm. But uh, it does seem to improve scores when I take them out for a walk before we have a major exam. Oh, you've done this with your students? Yes. And they love it, by the way. That's fascinating. I wish we did it more often, but we're often crowded for time. Right. So what are we talking about today? Well, so the question here is, is there some evolutionary benefit. So there's a long-standing discussion about the so-called obesity paradox. In some studies, it appears that mortality is uh, inversely correlated with obesity. The heavier patients weren't dying in these studies as fast as the so-called normal weight patients. And this article is a corner of that discussion. This article speculates that people who have 
starved and then um, have abundant access to food and become obese in that pattern, develop a particular pattern of obesity that has some immunologic benefits. That's right. Uh, so the paper in question, this is uh, by Mary Jane West Everhart, who is at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Costa Rica, most currently. And she is trained as an entomologist, by the way, uh, an evolutionary biologist. Um, bugs. Bugs. And she's, uh, she's famous in the evolutionary biology world. So this paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It was published pretty recently, January of this year. And the title is Nutrition, the Visceral Immune System, and the Evolutionary Origins of Pathogenic Obesity. I exchanged a, a couple of emails with, uh, with Mary Jane, and she reminded me that uh, when, when I was a kid, apparently she came to visit Tempe, Arizona, checked in with my dad, who's also an entomologist, also an evolutionary biologist, and apparently I went roller skating with her daughter, and her daughter fell and broke her arm. So that was a dramatic event, and that some shared experience that I have with Mary Jane West Everhard. Of course, I have, I have zero memory of this. Small um, world, but yeah, small world. But I wouldn't want to have to paint it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen Wright. A bit more recently, though, I did hear Mary Jane West Everhard give a talk at a meeting here at the University of New Mexico. It was at least three years ago. She gave one of the plenary talks for this this group of evolutionary biologists and anthropologists, and she had some really interesting points of view that she doesn't really get into in this paper. She made the point that, you know, diet in the insect world has a huge impact on your body shape. You can take in a honeybee or a wasp colony, you can feed the larva ordinary food and it becomes a, a worker bee. You feed it royal jelly and their body shape changes completely. And just based on what they eat, their bodies can change radically. But she was talking about how maybe us humans, depending on what we eat, we might store fat and develop differently in ways that are adaptive and evolved in the same way that insects do. Well, interestingly, uh, along those lines, she references the Dutch hunger winter, which is a really interesting study. Uh, as it turns out, it's been replicated in, in other studies. These are retrospective, by the way, in humans, where a group of people will face starvation for a while, but there are some survivors. And the offspring, first and second generation offspring of these survivors, exhibit epigenetic adaptations to that period of starvation and fasting. There are some complexities to the way that these epigenetic changes are inherited. I went to a uh, lecture by some scientists from uh, Sandia who were explaining epigenetics. And according to them, this has been replicated now in a number of different similar studies. So that this. So what is the effect? Well, they tend to uh, store fat differently and to become obese. It's consistent with this article. I can see why she cited the other study. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to mention that in this article, she differentiates between visceral abdominal fat, uh, visceral adipose tissue, and it subcutaneous should, should adipose vast, tissue. Yeah, so fat and sat. <laughs> right. Now, visceral adipose tissue corresponds roughly to the apple shape. And subcutaneous adipose tissue corresponds roughly to the pear shape. And this leads to a bit of a paradox because she's making the case that the apple shape has some immunologic advantages, but epidemiologically, the pear shape does better in the big picture. That is, people who are obese in a pear shape, while they do suffer some consequences of obesity compared to normal weight populations, 
they fare much better than the people with the apple shape, less cardiovascular disease, less atherosclerotic complications. So that's what we observe, and certainly that's what we pay attention to as physicians. At the population level. At the population level. The argument that she's making is that the propensity to store fat in that way is actually adaptive and beneficial for them. And one way to think of this is it's, it's making the best of a bad deal, so or of a bad circumstance. And the bad circumstance that she pays a lot of attention to is what happens if you are born small or not enough nutrients and blood flow gets to the developing fetus. So that's this concept of being born small for gestational age, maternal under-provisioning of the fetus. But in the Dutch hunger winter, what's really happening there is that the moms are starving. And so the idea is that the babies are not getting enough nutrients. The phenomenon in the Dutch hunger winter is this idea that if you're born during a famine, you have a much higher rate of having some chronic diseases later on in life. And those include things like obesity, cardiovascular disease, it's a bit of a paradox why this happens. Now, she uses a phrase, childhood catch-up growth. Mm -hmm. So this child is born underweight because mom was starving, but then the child has access to plentiful nutrition and catches up. And the more rapidly the child catches up or overshoots the normal weight for age, the stronger the predictor of this pattern of visceral adipose tissue preference over subcutaneous adipose tissue. Yeah. Just to lay out the argument, the argument here is that if you're exposed to not enough nutrition very early in life, then a bunch of developmental switches change in your body and you develop differently. It changes your whole life course in a way that is associated with the obesity epidemic. The way that Mary Jane West Everhart described it to me was a betrayal of a fetal decision due to a dietary disaster. So the fetus makes a decision based on how much nutrients are coming in as an embryo. Um, that have these lifelong consequences. Later on in life, there's the dietary disaster. Way too much junk food, way too much formula, too much of all sorts of nonsense. The fetus is gambling that he or she is going to be born into this world of deprivation, completely shot. And so the catch-up growth that we think of as being good, you know, the kids are getting higher up on those growth charts, starting to look more quote-unquote normal. She's describing that as a disaster. And it wasn't as clear to me as I'd like it to have been. It could have been my fault. But I have the sense that she sees it as a harbinger for future obesity, as opposed to getting to a normal weight and then staying there once you've caught up. It's a mismatch. So the fetus makes a decision based on some predictive signals that really have to do with food and nutrition and glucose that they're exposed to as an embryo. So she's saying that you're born small. You, you're kind of behind the eight ball, as it were, when it comes to life's lottery. Much higher chance of dying in childhood never making it to be an adult. Your risk of infection is far, far greater. And GI infections and diarrhea is a major killer of kids. So what these fetuses are doing is they're gambling that, that they're going to be born into a dangerous world. Yeah, the way I'd say it is they're adapted to the world they came from rather mm -hmm. than the one they're going to, which, by the way, uh, describes human civilization. That's a good way to put it. This works out if you're born into a world where resources are scarce because any given calorie then gets devoted towards the visceral fat. The visceral fat is useful because it has this immune function that combats infections, and having lots of visceral fat might have benefits. Now, I actually really enjoyed the discussion of the immune functions of visceral fat, and I have to say, and maybe I need a new hobby, but I was really interested to learn more than I had known before about the ways in which the omentum is used as an immune 
uh, reinforcer during surgeries. It's totally like cool, that. isn't it? That was super interesting to me. I believe that the fellow who wrote a paper early in the last century, I want to say his name was Rutherford. I could be totally wrong. We'll figure it out. But he described the omentum as the abdominal policeman. The omentum wraps itself around perforated bowel, protects the body from a ruptured appendix. So the omentum isn't just a thing. It just isn't a drape of fat that surgeons have to get through to get to organs when they, when they cut open the belly. That the omentum actually has this really, really important role. <clears throat> and it explains some really interesting things. So one is that when you're teaching your, your students about, say, the typical appearance of someone with appendicitis, they're kind of curled up. They don't want to move. They oftentimes will bring their knees up a little bit more towards their chest if they have a really inflamed appendix. It turns out that by moving one's body in that way, it brings the omentum into close Isn't approximation with the appendix. Yeah. And it allows the appendix to wrap around, be wrapped around with omentum. Now, it then, could be that's yeah. an adaptation of the omentum to that characteristic pose, yeah. secondary to pain. Yeah. Or it could be that pose is an adaptation to the function of the omentum. Well, I'd say it's or both. Both. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with both. Yeah. So, but the idea is that people, surgeons were kind of confused by this the first time that they opened up people and they saw the omentum wrapped around an inflamed appendix. The omentum doesn't have muscles. It doesn't have a way of moving around. So it really, it's the, bod, the, the patient who's moving their body in such a way that the omentum does this. Um, but it's a clue that the fat in the gut plays a role, a protective role with infection. And in particular, it keeps microbes from the gut that would otherwise be pathogenic from escaping into the peritoneum, causing all sorts of badness. Um, so that, that to me is a, was a very early clue that fat has this immune function. Now, there are a couple of parts of our argument that I have a little bit of trouble with. Um, here, by the way, I think is the section on the omentum that we're... All right, did I get the guy's name right? Who was the person that described the abdominal uh, policeman? Um, um, one part of our argument is that when, uh, when we're calorie-deprived, we develop leaky gut syndrome, and so it makes sense that the uh, risk of infection from the leaky gut syndrome would require the prioritization of a gut-oriented immune response. Uh, a single uh, one problem with that is that leaky gut syndrome itself is I wouldn't say a settled deal. I know that you think that it is does occur, and uh, well, there are situations where it does, like in sepsis, clearly. But it's more controversial, I think, than she makes it sound within this paper. And so we have to first accept the idea that leaky gut is an expected part of fasting. Uh, at least to the point of starvation. Well, it might be an expected part of being malnourished. Right. And, and I mean, yes, and it is hypothesized that it is. But as far as I can tell, people are still haggling over how (laughs) robust the evidence is for that. (laughs) Okay. So I was right and I was wrong. Okay. The person that described the abdominal policeman, his name was Morrison. Oh, Morrison. But it was James Rutherford Morrison. Ah, okay. Well done. (laughs) So I was was partly right. James Rutherford Morrison. Professor of surgery... And he wrote this paper, yeah, 1912, I think. Now, the second part of our argument is, if we grant the leaky gut thing, which mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a problem with, it's less of a done deal in my mind than it is in yours, uh, from judging from our previous conversations. But the other thing is that the idea is that prioritizing this immune response, which is fairly specific to the problems of leaky gut, is more important than the other consequences of this uh, particular distribution of fat. Now, I don't have any problem with the fact that the cardiovascular consequences 
because they occur later in life, may not be the priority from an evolutionary standpoint, which mostly cares about us getting far enough to reproduce. But the mortality rates for apples are worse than the uh, for yeah apples are worse than the mortality rates for pears. And uh, we didn't really go into the obesity paradox yet, though it's referenced a few times in this article. And we talked about the obesity paradox in a previous in podcast. In a previous podcast. So we'll, so, uh, we'll refer you guys to go uh, listen to so our I would, conversation about I don't that. really accept that being obese is mm-hmm. itself a survival advantage at all. And I'm not convinced that the apple obesity wins over the pear obesity. I know that epidemiologically it doesn't, but we look at people later in life when we're looking at that question than she's concerned about from an evolutionary standpoint. Well, this is so, what's so interesting, I think, when I read an article like this and I think, wow, Mary Jane West Eberhardt has some ideas that are really similar to mine. But then when I send her an email, it turns out that her ideas are a little bit different <laughs> than mine. You know? So when I describe my take on it, it's really my take on this yeah. and maybe a little bit different from really what she's trying to, to get across. Um, but I think if I, from, from, from doing the reading here, she's not really saying that having apple obesity is good for you. She's saying that the underlying mechanisms that lead to apple obesity would have been protective in, in some past environment. And, and, I, really, and it really would have been even more protective in an environment which we didn't have access to fast food. And so I'm not just, really haggling that yeah. because I think that survival to reproduction is a different question than survival to old age. Right. So she's describing, so we're trying to describe, we're trying to explain two things. So one is, why is obesity so common today when it wasn't before? And two, why is obesity associated with all these inflammatory, apparently immunological kinds of phenomena that, that we look at as being pathological and bad? And the answer to that, there's two, I guess it's a two-part answer, but this, the second part is that it's not all bad, that the regulatory mechanisms evolved, and in some relatively recent historic environments, those regulatory switches were good for us. So she's describing this, I'll just quote, it's a developmental mismatch on a massive scale. So poor fetal nutrition, these are babies that aren't getting enough in utero nutrition, they then favor this accumulation of visceral fat. Then, when you have massively increased caloric input, that incre- increases the likelihood of developing pathogenic fat. So she's still leaving room. She's not saying the whole thing is adaptive or beneficial or good. She's saying that there's pathological patterns of visceral adiposity. And I suppose I have to agree with that. We see this in clinical practice. People that have that are morbidly obese, and morbid means diseased, morbidly obese people really have a very high mortality and lots of risks of some very serious diseases. While some predictions are made in the conclusion section, they have not yet been tested uh, prospectively, and it's tricky to do. But this paper is largely an argument for not necessarily the apple over the pear, but for some particular benefits that are within the apple configuration. The adaptive part really is what's happening in early life. It's what's mm-hmm. happening at the, at the fetus, the infant, mm-hmm. maybe the two-year-old who's going through weaning and being going, going that, that transition to, to regular food, which, as it turns out, is a dangerous time to be a human. That's <laughs> a, really, that's a, there's a little peak of mortality that, that, that's right around, around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that has to do with acquiring gut pathogens and getting sick. So the idea would be if you, if you already know you're behind the eight ball, Having a little bit more investment in, in this highly immune-activated fat in your gut might actually get you past that little peak of mortality and then on to, on to later life. I also enjoyed the discussion that certain uh, fatty acids are important uh, to be used as building blocks by the immune system and other fatty acids are less important to the immune system. 
so that the um, visceral adipose tissue gets first dibs on the fatty acids that are that are utilized by the immune system. That was a new argument to me. Right. So some of that's pure energetics, right? The, the fatty acids are being used uh, as fuel. It takes a lot of energy to fuel an activated immune system. So having the right fats that can be easily metabolized, that makes sense to some degree. It may not be the whole answer. Oh, and here's another new thing I hadn't heard before. According to this paper, this visceral adipose tissue is more sensitive to insulin even as the somatic tissues become less sensitive to insulin so that you can have type 2 diabetes as a consequence of obesity and yet, uh, in this regional way, increase sensitivity to insulin. That's something new. I had never heard of that before. So the fat tissue itself around the gut remains insulin sensitive while if, the rest of your body is If I understood correctly, yeah. Yeah. So what's going on there is that so if you eat, if you eat a Big Mac and you, there's some glucose and free fatty acids floating around as a result of that digestion. Um, the glucose, when you, one problem when you become really morbidly obese is that you develop insulin resistance. In the insulin resistant state, insulin doesn't, the insulin receptor activation doesn't allow glucose to go into certain cells. The overall insulin resistance pattern that, that we see, it doesn't apply to the visceral fat. Those sugars and fats can still be stored as energy in the visceral adipose tissue. But your other tissues can't do it. So you're, if you want to like go for a walk, your quadriceps muscles and your, you know, your biceps, they can't take out glucose and use it as fuel as readily when you're insulin resistant, if you have metabolic syndrome, what we think of as being this pathological immune state. And you're going to store, you're going to preferentially store energy in that particular place where, where we know that this fat has this immune function. Now, it's my understanding there are some um, ethnic differences in fat storage as well, that some groups are more likely to store fat viscerally and others are more likely to store fat subcutaneously. I want to say I read it either in the main paper or in, she has a lot of supplemental information and a bunch of appendices, but one of the things that she alludes to is that when we identify certain populations or ge geographical areas or ethnic groups that we think tend to be heavier or have more of an apple-shaped uh, physiology, what that might reflect might just be a more recent transition to a Western market economy where we have lots of junk food. It may simply be that those human populations have undergone this transition more at a, at a more recent time than other groups. So that kind of makes sense to me. It fits with the epigenetic first and second generation hypothesis. Right. It fits with the idea of a culture that hasn't changed its habits in response to a new circumstance. However, um, if that were true, given how long Americans have been eating fast food, we should be reversing our obesity curve, and I don't see that happening. Well, it's been, flattening, been, but I think it's flattening because we're saturating it. The when was the curve. first McDonald's? 1950s? Early 50s, yeah. Yeah. How many human generations have elapsed since then? Not enough for us to really have evolved or even coped with any kind of epigenetic well, buffering. Well, we're the oldest of the fast food cultures. We're the first of the fast food cultures. We're number one. So if we can say that over time we see a reversion to a more normal weight distribution, we would be the ones you'd see that in. That does go along with this hypothesis that over several generations we'd expect to see obesity going down if this visceral fat prioritization hypothesis is true. So we should treat this as a prediction rather than an observation. That's yeah, a prediction. 
so far we only have people that are still in the newly adapted uh, uh, category and That's we right. don't have anybody who's been around long enough to come down the other side of that curve. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe so, maybe so. What did you think about the uh, discussion of the thin fat babies? So I had a problem with the fact that they were comparing thin fat babies in India yeah. with normal weight babies in England because there are so many other differences between the two populations, I hardly know where to start. Right. But her argument was that there are certain babies that are, that are underweight and seem small, but if, if you look at the distribution of fat in their bodies, they have lots of visceral fat and maybe less, less fat elsewhere. So they may, they may look thin, but they actually have a, a generous accumulation of visceral fat. I and saw this is something which has been, has been described in various places in Southeast Asia. I saw it as more consistent with than evidence of this hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, she's finding evidence here and there. She presents this as a hypothesis. I think it's in the, almost in the opening lines here. Um, so she's floating a hypothesis and saying, here's an interesting possibility. And she does certainly acknowledge that uh, more study is needed to test the predictions that this hypothesis would make. Viewed that way, I think this is a, a really nice uh, scientific paper because too often we fail to distinguish when we're presenting a hypothesis versus when we're presenting evidence for, you know, uh, true. what we hope will become a theory. And this is, but this is something that evolutionary biologists often do. We can't do evolutionary experiments in humans. It would be unethical and it would be wrong. But we can make evolutionary... You say that like it's a bad thing. We can make evolutionary inferences based on epidemiologic patterns and we can marry that with experimental work done in animals and we can try to make sense of something. So I think what what this effort tries to do is it tries to make the most parsimonious explanation of a really complicated set of observations that otherwise don't have a good explanation or not may, may lead people to inaccurate assessments of, of kind of what the problem is. Um, so the hope is that if you can come up with an evolutionary explanation that explains every, you know, nuance of fat, inflammation, and the obesity epidemic, that we'd be in a better position to do something about it. Well, I think That's it's certainly hope. helpful, too, to understand that there's obesity and then again there's obesity, that the VAT form, the apples, is significantly different than the piriform. Now, that we knew, the piriform being the SAT, the subcutaneous. Um, yeah. And why there are two different forms and why they exhibit two different um, uh, expected lifetime courses, I think is a really interesting question, and this is the most detailed approach to tackling that question that I've seen so far. Mm -hmm. and, one, um, and when we talk about how genetics can't explain so the recent emergence of the obesity epidemic. Um, it, is, it is very likely, however, that genetics has a big role in some of the regulatory mechanisms that underlie the obesity epidemic. And uh, she, this is, was an interesting comment that she made here. So these complex, developmentally plastic metabolic traits, the things that cause obesity based on certain cues that you get as a fetus, um, they're predisposed to undergo especially rapid evolution. And this can happen in um, over the period of, uh, it's going to take multiple generations, but it certainly can happen within, um, since the agricultural revolution, so a, a 10,000 year uh, time frame, or a little bit less. Um, and we, we, you know, human geneticists consider 10,000 years recent evolution.
Now, I saw the phrase genetic preference in that context. I'm looking for it now. And I had the sense that uh, she meant genetic drift. So genetic preference, I would understand to be natural selection, uh, whereas genetic drift uh, can happen a lot faster. It doesn't require any new, new mutations or new genes, but um, it still can be a form of like sexual selection and so on. In other words, things that happen over a short period of time that strongly favor certain genes. Yeah. Maybe it's true that blondes have more fun, for example. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I, what, what she's describing here is mostly natural selection, but she does have a discussion here about sexual selection. Did you read that? Yeah, a lengthy um, <laughs> talk about the subcutaneous distribution of fat generating uh, fertility and um, health cues. Yeah, I'll just quote her. Fat areas, um, and she talks about breast, gluteal, femoral deposits, and the male paunch are all fat areas that have among their other functions they reflect fertility, beauty, so social stature, and power. I got right to work on that male paunch, I'm telling you. <laughs> I know, I've, i got to work on that. That kind of permission was too good to pass out. That's right. <laughs> so she describes that there could be, this, this is interesting, I hadn't heard it described in this way, the, the differences between where fat gets deposited in some of these subcutaneous areas that may possibly um, convey, confer some social advantages or sexual selection advantages. There's going to be a trade-off between that and this visceral fat, which has predominantly an immune benefit. Yeah, her argument as I followed it was, if you have enough food that you're not worried about survival, the next thing you worry about is social status, and your body essentially acts as if it knew that. Right. Um, is evolved to take advantage of that. So you project the signs of uh, stability and, and social success as fertility markers if you've solved the survival problem. But until you've solved the survival problem, that takes precedence. And it makes me wonder, if there really is that trade-off, anthropologists and others have described male preference for you know, the hourglass kind of shape and looking at the waist-to-hip ratio as a predictor of attractiveness. But the waist-to-hip ratio also reflects how much adipose tissue is being prioritized for this visceral depot. And so it makes me wonder if there really is a trade-off or some kind of connection there. Is it, are we viewing a lot of adipose tissue as being a marker of ill health? In modern times we are, but historically I do not think that's been the case. Right. Um, so that brings up two things, actually. I was only going to go for one, but now yeah. two. So the first thing I was going to say is one problem with this speculation about the evolutionary it's not biases. not just speculation. These are testable predictions, uh, man. I'll say theories, then. Hypotheses. Hypotheses. About um, sexual selection is the arbitrariness of it. The 50s were very zoftig. In the uh, 1920s and the 1960s, a thin, boyish figure was favored. Uh, the 70s into the 80s, we evolved toward a more hard-body athletic figure. This is for females I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And then there was the exaggerated Barbie doll look that uh, was popular in the 60s and became popular again sort of toward the end of the 90s. And now as we uh, move into the 2000s, we seem to be moving back into a Zoftig era. And, um, you know, this is way too fast for evolution to be changing what our needs are in a reproductive partner. No, I think what you're describing in terms of North American media and right. sociocultural preferences, that's definitely cultural change. And it would have, I think, very little to do with the kinds of things that Mary Jane Everhart is describing in her paper. Also, but, if you look at um, preferences in body type across mm -hmm. the world, for both males and females, mm -hmm. 
what populations pick in different regions of the world is drastically different. There isn't an ideal, like a lot of the world wouldn't care for the Arnold Schwarzenegger look at all, you know? Well, yeah, talk about an outlier. I mean, yeah, he's way off on the end of one tail. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to come back to that you said was um, the uh, averageness rats. There was a second thing I wanted to come back to on that. Oh, super stimulus. So this article that I read way back when I was a teenager, so this is an old article. What this guy did was he tested seagulls. Yeah. Oh, you remember this one? I want to say it's Conrad Lorenz. or. Uh... Oh, well done, sir. I'm suitably impressed. Anyway, he tested seagulls, who he found would tend to, if there was more than one egg in the nest, they prioritized the bigger egg. And he said, well, I wonder how far we can go with that. So he started putting bigger and bigger eggs in. And there's these pictures in the article of seagulls sitting on eggs the size of beach balls, right. having pushed out normal, viable eggs. So here we see a move away from average towards simply exaggeration of one trait that their poor little brain has been wired to say That's is right. desirable. Right. The term for this was super stimulus, and the article had kind of a laughing at them tone, oh, look at how these silly birds don't know when to stop at being overstimulated. Now, you go out and look at breast implants and butt implants and things like that, or even guys getting muscle implants, mm-hmm. silicon implants to make their muscles look bigger, and you realize that humans are not immune to the uh, to these exaggerated signals. Um, that's correct. So, yeah. So it was Con- Conrad Lorenz. I can't believe you pulled Nico that out. Well done. Tinbergen. Uh, these are these are really important folks in the evolutionary biology yeah. world. Um, but yeah, I did that did that work in the 1950s. Yeah. So it was great that you brought that up. So I was not a teenager in the 50s, but that's when I read about the work. Yeah. Going back a little bit towards the immune function of fat, there's a couple other lines of evidence. We talked about the omentum talked about how visceral fat gets activated when we have these infections. It has the macroscopic function of sealing off perforations in a, when you have appendicitis. It has a microscopic function of kind of directing immune activities and is a site of activated macrophages. It turns out that subcutaneous fat also has this immune function. And there was what we talked about when we did our podcast on the obesity paradox the paper I cited was a, a science paper that looked at skin skin wounding and the role of pre-adipocytes, so little undifferentiated fat cells in, in skin, that those pre-adipocytes, they can function just like macrophages. They can gobble up bacteria and they can produce inflammatory mediators. They can basically clear out, clear infections and they can direct uh the production of antimicrobial peptides and do a bunch of really, really interesting things. So fat behaves just like immune cells, and that can happen in the subcutaneous fat too. And Which I heard reminds I, me, have I thanked you yet for how much I learned in these discussions? Well, but it goes both ways. So Richard Gallo, I think, was one of the authors on that science paper that looked at the pre mm-hmm. I heard him give a talk at a <laughs> conference, and he was talking about how marine mammals, when they're wounded they will actually produce more blubber at the site of the injury. What about human lipomas? Are they more likely to occur near a surgical site, do we know? I had never thought about it. Uh, it's a really good idea. It would be interesting to look at. Yeah. I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. However, we do know that surgeons really dislike operating through a lot of adipose tissue, that those wounds are much more difficult to heal. We talked about the obesity paradox. And the other paradox is if all this fat does all this great immune stuff, then why do some obese people have higher risks of infection? That's real. 
Well, of course, it, you know, it's partly it's offset by the poorer vascular supply within fatty tissue. Right. By the way, I want to get your take on this. I would have said that the uh, obesity paradox, the notion that obesity is a, uh, prote- has a protective function, mm-hmm. has been well and thoroughly refuted when people actually did multivariant analysis and removed uh, confounders. Do you have a different sense of that? Well, I hadn't looked it up, but I think that there are certain subgroups for whom having, if you can just look at BMI or weight, that the, the trend goes in the opposite direction from what we'd predict. So some of the curves do seem to show that, but the problem is that um, people lose weight when they're dying. And so right, if you don't yeah. extract them, and this is one co-founder among several, by yep. the way, if you don't extract the people who are dying, uh, like who, who, who are losing weight because they're on the way out, then yes, you do get a skew toward people dying, more people dying who have lower body weight. But if you correct for that, so here's a graph we're looking at. This is um, this is literally a random graph I pulled up on Google. So I don't want to. <laughs> and it shows it, that it's not a paper we've analyzed together. Makes, but for, this, makes, makes for good radio. But what he's showing is this U-shaped curve that people that are very very underweight mm-hmm. and people that are very very overweight have an increased risk of death. So we look at a lot of bell curves. A U-shaped curve is simply an inverse bell curve. It's an upside-down bell curve. And the sweet spot in this case is the bottom of the curve, the lowest mortality rate, the lowest hazard ratio. In this particular curve, whatever it's from, it looks like it falls at around 27.5, which would be considered uh, mildly obese, just above the normal uh, weight range. Incidentally, two things we haven't talked about. One is that I'd be careful about associating, about equating normal with optimal. And the other is we haven't talked much about body composition, which is a metric that BMI misses completely. I think that she mentions that in this paper. Yes, she, she mentioned it to me, is that, yeah, there's this preoccupation with BMI. And, in fact, I even mentioned it. It's, but really what matters is not BMI. It's how much, how much of your body is visceral fat versus muscle and bone and sub-Q fat. The reason I mentioned averages before is there is some reason to believe that average most of the time will roughly equate with optimal because we evolve to keep the optimal in the middle of the bell-shaped curve and usually the people who are furthest from the center of a bell-shaped curve. For example, we think it's great to be tall, but uh, you start to rack up some medical consequences and the people who are the very tallest die quite young, as do the people who are the very tiniest. Um, The people who live the longest are the ones who are near the center of the height curve. And that's true for a lot of other uh, factors as well. In not one, but several studies I've seen over the years where faces are rated for beauty, it turns out that a composite face in which all of the features are maximized for averageness, average eye width, average distance from the nose, average length of the nose, things like that, the more average they are, the more beautiful they're rated. Although the very most beautiful tend to be average in all respects but one. Hmm. And a satire kind of thing you occasionally see in movies, typically science fiction movies that look at body modifications, is where people have the most beautiful features of a bunch of different women. You wind up with an absolutely bizarre appearance. So the most striking, beautiful eyebrows from this woman, the big poofy lips of that woman, the pug nose of the other woman. When you put all these extraordinary features together, you wind up with something absolutely grotesque. But when you have basically... And the same may be true for men, too. Yes, it's just that these studies tend to be women. But when you uh, have an average... A nearly optimized, a nearly standardized template 
with one extraordinary feature, that tends to be the one that people gravitate to. Now, these are aesthetic ratings, but it's still kind of interesting to... And, and these have been hypothesized, this is how I came across them, as indicating that the center of the bell curve is the safest place from a reproductive standpoint. Makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Again, a little bit speculative, but, well, not really that much because it matches actuarial tables and that for the things where that would apply. But now that weights have risen on average, average weight is far from what it used to be, and I would say far from what optimal weight would be. So the optimal and the average have diverged more now than the historic norm. Mm -hmm. I guess I want to conclude, it'd be good to talk about some of the public health or medical implications of this paper. It does have some implications. So one is that we should avoid underweight babies at all costs. We should avoid underweight babies. Prenatal care is important. Yeah. Here in an industrialized country where we have a choice. Yeah. But it also suggests, to my reading, that when babies are born underweight, we should be careful about how rapidly they rejoin the normal growth curve. I don't think yeah. it's wrong. I, I didn't get the sense that she was saying to get into trouble for join, rejoining the growth curve, but how rapidly they do it is important. And that makes sense to me. Right. So if you're born small and have rapid catch-up growth that is associated with bad things... So if we can slow that down or prevent overnutrition. Yeah, slow and steady wins the race. So we yeah, don't yeah. know yet how slow is optimal. At what age should they rejoin their cohort? I'm not sure. Yeah. Clearly before uh, bone sutures close. A lot of this discussion and this work that comes out by, by Mary Jane West Eberhard, it really builds on a lot of previous work that had nothing, where people were not thinking about the immune system at all. And, but people noticed, noticed these trends. They did notice that babies that were, the birth weights correlated with diabetes and obesity in a completely paradoxical way. That the smallest babies had the highest risk of those things. And that's work that dates back to the 80s, early 80s, um, work done by Barker and colleagues. And then anthropologists picked up on this and they suggested that some, some of what we see with mobilization of fatty acids, that it was an adaptation to feed the brain. So it was you know, the ketones, the, the free fatty acids. The, these, this was a, a way to, if you're starved, the brain gets prioritized. The problem with that is that... The brain you, doesn't use fatty acids. Well, it actually does. Not it, much. it can. But the, the, the problem with that is that this is sort of a universal thing. We see the same kind of, say, choices of, in terms of fat deposition in, in our pets, in dogs and cats that don't have big brains. We see something similar, and you can, you can have a lab, laboratory rat or mouse model. And so it doesn't require having a big brain to, to see some of these effects. So despite the fact that we think that we're special and we have these, these brains that drive all sorts of interesting things with evolution, um, there's, some more there's a more general purpose explanation uh, at, at the root of this. And her postulates about the evolution of this had to do with human culture over the last 10,000 years. Do you happen to know whether animals... Who were, who were fetally undernourished and then uh, have plentiful food supplies, do they prioritize visceral fat? I did not see that mentioned here. So I think that they do. And that's why we can, we can do experiments using mice and show, show some similar kinds of, uh, some similar relationships. Mm -hmm. But have, since you brought that up, I'm going to look that up. I'll try to find some information about that and put it on the blog. Well, I think that we've talked again for almost an hour, Coffee. It's been a, been a wide-ranging conversation again. So I think we'll, we'll wrap things up here. Did you want to kind of give folks a preview for what we might talk about next time? Um, I think what we're interested in talking about next time is why our brain has evolved to give us things like false memories and to believe inappropriate evidence and things of that sort. If you 
sat down and thought in a vacuum, how should a brain work, it wouldn't be like ours. Why is that? It's a great question. I sure don't have the answers. So that's something to look forward to. And with that, I think we'll sign off. Thank you, Coffee, for a great conversation. Thank you. Learned a lot of new stuff today.